Well, as you make yourself comfortable, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 19, one of the readings that uh, we had read for us just a bit earlier in the service. It's page 1087, 1087 in the Church Bibles, John chapter 19. I think it would help you if you had it open. It would certainly help me to know that you can see why I'm saying what I'm saying now. John chapter 19, page 1087, as we begin, as Jason said earlier, a new series uh, looking as we lead up to Easter, John 19 and 20. As I've been studying John chapter 19 this week, I've been struck by the news uh, this week. Uh, Here are uh, just a few of the headline stories that I pulled off the BBC website during the week. Uh, In politics, apart from the budget, the news has been dominated by the manoeuvrings of the Labour Party following the political loans debate. Uh, Abroad, uh, uh, Sergeant Michael Smith, a US Army dog handler, was jailed for six months for abusing detainees in Iraq's Abu Ghraib prison, and a lawyer for three British men held at Guantanamo Bay told the High Court that there was compelling evidence of them being severely tortured. In Baghdad on Thursday, a suicide car bomb killed three people, and back home, the hunt for the murderer of the model Sally Ann Bowman continues. And uh, even the good news of the release of the British peace activist Norden Kemba was sullied by the reminder uh, that his fellow captive Tom Fox was brutally murdered this month. And this this week's news headlines have struck me because a summary of them is an accurate description of chapter 19 of John's Gospel. All this is all here. The brutal killing of an innocent man. Pilate said, verse 6, I find no basis for a charge against him. And yet, verse 16, he handed him over to be crucified. Soldiers beating a blameless civilian, verse 3. A murderer, a murder motivated by religious hatred, verse 7. And it all happens because the man in government is more concerned about his political career than in doing the right thing, in verses 12 to 14. As we see Jesus being tried and then executed on a Roman cross, we are looking at the central moment in the history of the universe. It is no less than that. And so if this happened at the most significant moment in history, and if it happened to the person around whom the whole universe revolves, then we shouldn't be at all surprised when we see the same things happening in the world today. Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, caused uh, quite a stir when it was released this time two years ago. The explicit nature of the bloody execution of Jesus Christ offended many people. And whatever we made of the film, and whether we saw it or not, what Gibson brought to our attention is the chilling truth of what human beings will do to their maker when he steps into the world. The Lord God Almighty comes to us and we torture him and murder him and try to get him off the planet and out of our lives. And if we did it to him, you can be sure we'll do it to other people too. Because here in John 19 is the greatest sin of all. And so that sin will continue in the way we treat one another. So this chapter tells us don't be surprised when you open your newspaper and turn on the television set and go to the website 
to see this stuff going on around us. And it tells us not to interpret this wickedness as an indication that the world is out of control or that Almighty God is impotent or that evil will triumph. Indeed, John wants us to see here when we look at the detail that appearances can be deceptive. A friend of mine loves telling the story of uh, the time that his mum was at a party and was seated next to the very successful, highly talented and hugely wealthy singer Krista Burke. Being past retirement age and never having been interested in pop music, she didn't have a clue who he was. She introduced herself and uh, he said that his name was Chris. And what do you do for a living, Chris? She required. Oh, I'm a singer and a songwriter, he said. Uh, Not knowing who he was and thinking he looked a bit scruffy and a little undernourished, she said, oh dear, that must be a hard life. How do you pay the bills? To which he replied, oh, I make ends meet. He's a millionaire. He make ends meet. But you see, appearances can be deceptive. And as we look at this pivotal moment in history, that is certainly the case here. Indeed, as we look through this chapter, John wants us to see the spiritual reality and not just the physical appearance. He wants us to see things as they really are and not as they appear. See, look at Jesus as he is beaten by the soldiers, set up by the religious leaders and tried by Pilate and we can easily think that Jesus is a helpless victim. But John wants us to see that nothing could be further from the truth. Look at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. It's shocking. It is a shocking verse because Pilate had already declared that Jesus was innocent. He said it in chapter 18, verse 38. Do you see it back there? I find no basis for a charge against him. And he'll repeat the same words twice more in our chapter, chapter 19. Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent, yet he has him flogged. But that's no surprise. It's exactly the sort of thing we'd expect from Pilate. Pilate was a monster. Read Luke chapter 13 and it will show you what a cruel man he was as he took some Jews who were sacrificing in the temple and he had them murdered and then mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. He was a man who committed violence for no reason. Verse 1 is no surprise. Pilate handed Jesus over to soldiers to have him flogged, who, verse 2, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Shades of Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay and the streets of Iraq. But while this is remarkably contemporary, it is also completely unique. And it is dripping with irony as are so many of the events and words in this chapter. The mockery and the actions of these soldiers was, well, I can almost say prophetic. The the purple robe, the, the crown of thorns. Yes, they did it to mock Jesus, but they were speaking and acting in ways that were visionary. The crown of thorns was uncannily accurate. Jesus' kingly rule is exercised as he suffers a cruel death. The innocent lamb of God, sacrificed by those he came to save, John wants us to see the truth that Jesus is, as they mockingly said, the king of the Jews. No, he didn't look like a king. But then remember, appearances can be deceptive. 
It must have been such a laugh for the soldiers. Can you imagine them down the pub at the end of the day, recalling the events of verse 2 and 3 over a pint? What a laugh it was at the time. Just as it was a laugh for Sergeant Michael Smith as he taunted and humiliated detainees in Abu Ghraib. But it wasn't a laughing matter this week as the trial was heard. The verdict reached and as he was led off to serve his sentence, he wasn't laughing then. And it wasn't a laughing matter for these soldiers when years after this event they would have died and been instantly catapulted into the presence of Jesus. Then they'd have seen the truth of the words of mockery. Jesus is the King of the Jews and the King of Gentiles too. And as the verdict was reached and they were led off to serve their eternal sentence in hell, they certainly wouldn't have been laughing then. Appearances can be deceptive. Jesus is king. He may not, look, may not have looked like it in verses 2 and 3, but Jesus is king. He is a loving king who suffered a cruel death to save his enemies, to offer salvation. But if we fail to acknowledge that truth and take that rescue, make no mistake, we will regret it for all eternity. Please don't be like the soldiers. And don't be like Pilate either, verse 4. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Then why, Pilate, did you have him flogged? Why? Once again, the words carry more truth than, than we could ever know. Never before or since had anyone seen a man more innocent. Pilate found no basis for a charge against him because there is no basis to hold anything against Jesus. As John the Baptist declared right at the beginning of this Gospel, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The innocent, sinless Lamb of God. Yet Pilate had him flogged. It's telling when it's that blatant, isn't it? And it is going on all around us all the time. Oh, it, it, it doesn't make the news, but this very thing is going on every day here in Sheffield and even in Respectable Forward. People of position, just like Pilate, reputable men and women are rejecting the king of the universe, snubbing Jesus for no reason. I find no reason. I find no charge against him. My dad was telling me just this week how he invited a friend to come along to Bible study. Why don't you come along? Dad asked him. He refused the invitation. And when Dad gently asked, well, well why not? He had no reason. No reason at all. Rejecting Jesus with no grounds for that decision, don't be like Pilate. Don't be like him. If you're going to walk away from Jesus, at least have a considered reason. Not, not that there are ever any reasonable grounds for rejecting the most loving man who ever lived. See, Pilate find, found none. Look at the end of verse 4. I find no basis for a charge against him. In verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, here is the man. And once again, Pilate speaks better than he knew. Verse 5, here is the man. Eke homo. Behold the man. I doubt Pilate knew what he was saying. 
But here are words of such profundity, it is difficult to plumb their depths. Behold the man. In fact, I heard these very words this week. Did you hear them? From Dean Macy as he won Commonwealth gold in the decathlon. I feel like I'm the man, said Dean from Canby Island. Well, let's be sure, Dean Macy is not the man. Jesus is the man. The word made flesh, as John described him in chapter chapter 1, verse 14. The man who defines true humanity. The man who determines the destiny of all men. The divine man who rules over the whole creation. The man who fulfilled the true role of the human race. And the man who reverses the disaster caused by Adam, the first man. The man who has come to take upon himself the sin of every man. Pilate spoke so much better than he knew. Behold the man. You will find no one more completely human than Jesus. No one more perfect than him. And then the very people who should have recognised the man when he arrived on planet Earth were the priests. You see, ever since Moses, 1,500 years earlier than this, the job of the priests were to prepare the Jewish nation for the Messiah, the man that they were waiting for. But then as the man was presented to them, what did they do, verse 6, as they, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. You see, in the soldiers and Pilate, we saw the Gentiles rejecting the king of the universe. Now we see the Jewish people doing the same, exactly the same. And it is exactly what John told us at the beginning of his gospel. Do you remember how it opened? These famous words that we read at Christmas. John chapter 1 verse 10. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's what's happening here in John chapter 19. His own did not receive him. Even as he was declared innocent. Verse 6. Pilate answered, you take and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die. Once again, we see such irony. Do you see the irony? The chief priests appealed to the scriptures to have Jesus murdered. And yet it was those very scriptures that spoke of Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' words in John 5? Now, I've uh, not asked you to turn up any of the other references, but but please come with me to this one. John chapter 5, page 1069. John chapter 5, and uh, the key verses are verses 39 and 40. But I'm going to read from verse 36, because I'm going to refer to them later as well. John chapter 5, we want to look at 39 and 40, but let me read from verse 36. Jesus speaking. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies, listen to these words, that the Father has sent me and the Father who sent me has testified himself concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. Then listen to this. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you've got your own Bible with you, underline those words. 
John 5, 39 and 40. These are the scriptures that testify about me. A friend of mine has a terrific party piece. It involves his little boy, just two and a half years old. When people visit the house, my friend holds a Bible, uh, holds it up, and he says to his little boy, Ben, what's this? And little Ben says, Bible. He's only just started to, to, to speak, but he's got that word already, Bible. And then he says, and Ben, what's the Bible all about? And his little boy says, Jesus. And then my friend turns to his guests and he says, there you are, just two and a half years old, and he knows more than most Anglican clergymen already. (laughs) It's a friend of mine that says that, you understand. But that's John 5.39, the Bible's about Jesus, the man. And so, what a surprise John John 19 is. Jesus says, these are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet here in John chapter 19 and verse 7, the chief priests who studied the scriptures used the scriptures to dispose of the one who is the subject of the scriptures. Isn't it shocking? Blaise Pascal from the 17th century said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Bishop J.C. Ryle from the 19th century said, It is a painful fact that in every age none have been such hard, cruel, unfeeling and bloody-minded persecutors of God's saints as ministers of religion. And is it any wonder? It was an appeal to religion that had the King of the Jews crucified, verse 7. We have a law. Here is the blindest religious hatred you will ever see. And so is it any surprise that today we see religious hatred in our world? If it was at the heart of the pivotal moment in history, then it will always be around today. If it was sin, then, as sin reigns in the world today, it will still be going on. Don't be surprised at religious hatred. It will go on until until Jesus returns. Religion without Christ is a wicked thing. It's a wicked thing. Not a neutral thing, it is wicked. It is used as an excuse to blow people up and execute people like Abel Ramham. It is used as a means to manipulate the tender-hearted. It is used as a cover to abuse the vulnerable. And it was used to kill the author of life, verse 6. Crucify, crucify, they shouted, verse 7. We have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. It didn't for one minute cross their minds that he was the Son of God. That's the issue they should have considered, but it's a question they didn't take seriously, not for one minute. Do not make the same mistake as the chief priests. Ask the question, is Jesus who he claimed to be, is he the Son of God? And what does that mean? It's a question that indeed should trouble us until we have given it very serious consideration. It certainly troubled Pilate. But verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. No wonder, verse 9, he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. Where do you come from? Well, be sure Pilate wasn't just asking Jesus for his postcode or, or for the town registered on his birth certificate, for that matter. Pilate wanted to know if Jesus really is more than a travelling prophet from Galilee, if he really is the Son of God. It's the right question. And do you remember when we read from John 5, Jesus had already given us the answer. 
We won't turn it back again, but let me remind you of those words we read. He said twice, the Father has sent me. The Father has sent me. He is God from God. Begotten, not made. But here's a huge surprise. Although he said it in John 5, he didn't give Pilate that answer. You see, Pilate asked the right question, but at the end of verse 9, Jesus gave him no answer. And I don't know whether you've been disturbed so far by these words. I've certainly have been challenging them to my boots this week. But you certainly, and I should as well, be disturbed by this moment in the Gospel. Jesus refused to answer Pilate. Why? Because Pilate had already made up his mind about Jesus. What difference would answering Pilate make? Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. We've heard it from his own lips. He said it three times already, yet he had him flogged and he wouldn't release him. Pilate will not do the right thing, so what difference will answering this question make? It is a chilling moment. It is a chilling moment to believe and grasp that there comes a point in a person's life when having had every chance to obey what God and conscience are dictating to us, God will speak to us no more. That is a terrifying moment. Friends, never let yourself get to that moment. Friends, please do not play around with Jesus. Do not think that you can come here and listen to the Bible and remain neutral. Do not think that you can be challenged as you hear the Bible and do nothing about it and it will have no effect on you, that you can make up your mind in the future. There might come a point when God stops speaking to you and you come and you don't hear anything. In verse 9, from Jesus' point of view, there is nothing left to say, you see. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent and yet he won't act on what he already knows, so what difference will more information make to him? And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are some here tonight who've heard all the information they need about Jesus. Now, it might be that you've not been here very often or that you still need more uh, information. You may want to ask more questions. If that's you, then keep asking the questions and keep coming. But for some, they've been coming for years and you've heard all the information that you need. What difference will more information make? End of verse 9, Jesus gave him no answer. And Jesus' silence irritated Pilate. See, Pilate was used to people begging for mercy in his presence. Look at verse 10. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And once again, see how deceptive appearances can be. Anyone looking on would think that Pilate does indeed hold Jesus' destiny in his hands Nothing could be further from the truth. John has already recorded Jesus' words in John chapter 10. Do you remember those amazing words in John 10? The reason my Father loves me, John 10 verse 17, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Pilate doesn't have any power over Jesus. Oh, it may look as if Pilate's in control, but appearances can be deceptive. 
And had Jesus wanted to, he could have escaped death here, just as he did in chapter 10. It may look as if Pilate's in control, but it's quite the opposite. Verse 11, Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It may look as if Pilate's in control, but Pilate doesn't even have control over his own actions, verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate struts onto the stage of human power, but he is enslaved by the political threats of his frenzied opponents. And John wants us to acknowledge that until we follow Christ, we too will always be slaves. Slaves to the establishment or to the crowds or the pressure group or the desire to be accepted or the persuasive argument or or, or anything that stops us from obeying Jesus. Ultimately, Pilate wanted the approval of Caesar in Rome rather than the, the approval of the Father in heaven. And as a result, Pilate was controlled by the crowd. Quite simply, we are not free until the Lord is our King. Appearances can be deceptive, and that's no more true than in verse 13. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Pilate sat down on the judgment seat. Appearances can be so deceptive. Pilate sat on the stone pavement, Gabbatha. But Jesus is on the judgment seat. Do you see the irony? Pilate tries to pass judgment on the one whose judgment determines the eternal destiny of every one of us. And the desperate thing is that every one of us acts like Pilate, trying to judge King Jesus. Thinking we rule the roost, thinking we can tell him what to do, thinking we're in control. It is a terrible position to be in because Jesus rules the roost. He is on the throne and he is in control right down to the time and date of this sham trial. Verse 14. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Even this is dripping with irony. This was the time when the Jewish nation were preparing for the Passover, the most significant date in the Jewish calendar. Do you remember what it was all about? They would remember the events recorded in the book of Exodus, where the Jewish nation were rescued from enslavement to the Egyptians. When they were saved on one terrifying night, when they were told to kill an innocent lamb and to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house, so that when the angel of the Lord passed over Egypt, the angel would not destroy the firstborn male in the household, but would do just that, pass over. And now they were preparing for that Passover, remembering that occasion, remembering that there is only one way to be saved from the Lord's judgment to come, remembering that the only way to be saved was to shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and yet here is the innocent Lamb of God who would be slain for the world. This is the one they should shelter under, and they reject him. Verse 15, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. 
And finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. They rejected him, and even in that moment, God is in control, for it was in their rejection that he would save the world. And it was in their calling for his death that God would give life. It was the day of preparation, verse 14, and as we head towards Easter, so it is today, the day of preparation. As the Apostle Paul wrote some years later, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation, but it won't be here forever. And there will be some here who, like Pilate, have glimpsed something of the reality behind all the appearances of this passing world. Perhaps you have begun to fear Jesus. Maybe it's only happened tonight. You've begun to fear the man. The man who will pass judgment on your soul and mine. The only man who can rescue you from the judgment to come. If you've begun to realise that, don't be like Pilate. Allowing the opinion of others to determine your judgment and your eternal destiny. Turn to Jesus today. Appearances can be deceptive. Whatever it looks like, here is reality. And the reality is that Jesus is king. That he is the Lamb of God. That he will judge one day. And there is only one way to escape the judgment. And that is to put yourself under, as it were, the blood of the Lamb. His death on the cross for you. Now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are some here who are saying, I want to do that tonight. Don't leave it another moment. And I've got some booklets, The Real Jesus. I'd love to give you one of these on the way out. I'm going to stand at the door. And all you need to do is just say, I'd like one, and, and I'll give you one of these. Don't leave it any longer. Hundreds of us have already taken that step. We've realised that we need Jesus to be our King. And for those of us who have already taken that step, then as we look at John 19, as we're bombarded in the news by the brutality of the world around us, John says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by what you see in the news. At the heart of the central moment in the history of the world is the brutal killing of an innocent man. Don't be surprised when innocent people are killed. At the very heart of this story, soldiers... Beat a blameless civilian. Don't be surprised when that happens in the world. At the heart of this story, someone is murdered, motivated by religious hatred. Don't be surprised when that happens in the world. And at the heart of this story, a weak political leader would not stand up for truth. Don't be surprised when that happens in the world. Don't be surprised when those things continue to happen. And don't be alarmed. Because whatever it looks like, appearances can be deceptive. And whatever it looks like here, God was not out of control. And he's not out of control now. Let's pray together. Thank you, our Lord and God, that even at the very moment when the Lord Jesus was being crucified, when he was being beaten, when he was 
being stripped of everything. You were in control. Thank you very much that we can have deep assurance that whatever we see going on in the world around us, you're still in control today. And we thank you for this amazing, loving act of the Lord Jesus, who is the one who lays down his life and takes it up again, who did not need to die, yet was prepared to for us. We thank you so much. And we ask that our lives would reflect that thanks as we go through this day and through this week and the rest of our lives. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.